Welcome to Cinemaholics. I'm your usual host from the main show, John Negroni, and with me for this bonus discussion is a freelance writer with bylines at the Houston Chronicle, the New York Times, RogerEbert.com, and many more. It is Chris Wagner. Chris, welcome to Cinemaholics. I'm really glad you're here. Hey, John. We're here to discuss a new four-part true crime documentary series on Netflix called Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. It covers in part the sordid criminal history of the hotel, which dates back about 100 years. It's been a notorious hotspot for crime and gentrification in downtown Los Angeles. But the main focus of this documentary series is a particularly fascinating case surrounding the disappearance of Elisa Lamb in 2013 and the the ongoing internet craze that followed these mysterious and tragic events. We won't give away anything too specific about these events or how it all ends or anything like that. Uh, we definitely want to leave a lot of the surprises intact for any of you who have not seen this documentary series quite yet, but we do recommend you see the entire thing before listening to this conversation if you don't want anything at all revealed. So Chris, in your New York Times piece about this docuseries, you called The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel a true crime story that investigates our true crime obsession. What did you mean by that? Well, you sort of alluded to the, I guess they're called web sleuths. Um, they're very much obsessed with this case of this disappearing woman, Elisa Lamb, and um, they lead us down some rabbit holes. And uh, the filmmaker, Joe Berlinger, who's been doing this for years, one of the really the best documentary filmmakers in any genre out there, did the, Par yeah. the Paradise Lost films, um, Brothers Keepers, really good filmmaker and very conscious of how he's using these uh, sort of internet personalities, if you will. And they all have theories about what might have happened to this woman, and they are not shy about sharing them. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, uh, I'm a fan of Berlinger's work as well. And, you know, even his recent stuff, I think that uh, I definitely felt like I got a lot out of uh, his Ted Bundy documentary series that he did, the Jeffrey Epstein one, Filthy Rich. Uh, there, there's another, there might be a few more that I, I am not as aware of, but yeah. So then going into this, this docuseries, how do you think it compares? I mean, you know, I, as I was watching this, I really did find myself going back and forth between how I feel about true crime right now and particularly like how Netflix has really taken a hold of that sensation in a post serial podcast world. Uh, but what, what do you make of it? Do you think this, this documentary series does a good job sort of straddling that line? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it has a really high level of craft, so, um, it's compelling to look at at all times and it can be frustrating sometimes for some of the reasons that I mentioned uh, before with the, the web sleuths and um, sort of presenting theories to us as if they might be legitimate. Um, and in fact, they're spoiler alert. They're often not. Um, right. Yeah, I, I think you could tell as you're watching. <laughs> that some yeah. Of them are a little you're out there. just kind of like, really dude, come on. Um, but I, I really, I liked it as a piece of work. I, I'm a big fan of, of Berlinger and I think he's, to me, and one of the things we talk about in the story, he's a fascinating character to me because he's well aware of some of the limitations of the true crime genre and the fact that it is so saturated. The market is so saturated right now with, with true crime. Um, and he's been doing it really before, since before the genre even existed. Um, you know, his, his seminal works go back to the 90s. Um, he also made a great documentary about Metallica in therapy called Some Kind of Monster, um, which I highly, highly recommend. Um, so I, I think he's doing some really interesting things with the material, and I think he's very conscious of what he's doing. 
Um, he's sort of interrogating the genre. And that can be a frustrating process sometimes for the viewer. Uh, but ultimately, I think it's a lot more interesting than, um, you know, just another true crime story. Yeah, yeah, I hear you on that. I'm not I'm not going to lie. I, I saw this as the number one trending thing on Netflix. And I had that sort of wave of like, you know, here we go again, you know, another true crime thing. I am glad that I did check this out and I gave it a chance just because... I think as the documentary goes along, I personally was surprised. Like, wow, they're really covering some territory that uh, I wasn't expecting. You know, kind of covering these uh, these web sleuths and how they're sort of adding things to it. And I think as the documentary goes on, I think the final episode, in my opinion, is the strongest because without getting anything, giving anything away, it actually really lands a point that uh, kind of transcends, like you're saying, the the genre kind of interrogates it, asks some real questions about why are we entertained by these things? Yeah. Like, why is it entertainment in the first place? And yeah, it sounds like you agree with that. Well, that's sort of, I think, the million dollar question with this, this genre. You know, what do we get out of watching these really painful, often very violent stories? Um, and I think Berlinger's asking that question. And then he's also getting into... You know, he considers himself, you know, kind of a social issue filmmaker in a, a way, which might sound odd, but he's talking about homelessness in the film, uh, talking about mental illness in the film. Um, so he, he does like expanding the view, if you will, and um, looking at, at some societal issues. Um, and I think that's really one of one of his trademarks, especially as a director, he actually directed this one, some of the more recent ones, uh, including the Epstein piece, which I thought was very good. He was just an executive producer. Oh, yes, that's correct. Um, so you definitely uh, see more of his fingerprints on something like this. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting that you bring that up because there were, there were a couple of moments where I was wondering where the homelessness angle was really going to go. I, I didn't mention this before, but this says this hotel is actually in Skid Row, which is a very infamous part of downtown Los Angeles. And one thing that I hope that, you know, a lot of people, if they get nothing else out of this documentary, it's a lot of the commentary there of like why this place exists, some of these systemic things that have happened to this area that have caused it. Some really fascinating history of Los Angeles in the 20th century, I would say. Yeah, deserving of its own documentary in a way. But yeah, I was interested in how it ties into this story, especially around, you know, uh, what happens with this, you know, supposedly naive teenager, or not teenager, excuse me, she's 21 years old. Um, very young person, though. Um, in fact, yeah, in 2013, around this time, I myself was like around her age, which I didn't even pick up on until, you know, I saw the gravestone. And I was like, oh, shoot, that's like close to my birth year. Um, so I had a, a pang of related, relatability there. But yeah, in, in terms of that part of the mystery, you know, the, how they sort of cover the hotel itself, kind of, we were talking about all the different theories. There's some like spookiness. There are some really weird coincidences. So like, what did you make of that? Did you, do you ever find yourself? I know some of the theories were definitely too insane to believe, but uh, what, what did you think of how the, the storytelling factored in when it came to some of the more, I don't know, I don't want to say credible theories, but the ones that kind of take are a bit more shocking, I guess. Yeah, I, th I think. You know, I've never been someone to have to, I've never had a problem believing in coincidence. Um, I think very often coincidence is in fact coincidence. So I think when we look really hard or we have an emotional investment in something being more than coincidence, that's when, you know, we start saying, oh, what if it was this? What if it was that? Um, so yeah, the coincidences are interesting. Um, but I don't know, sometimes people have a hard time 
seeing coincidence as coincidence. They, and we sometimes need to, we, we have this need, this emotional, psychological need to see it as something more, um, when in fact, it very often is not. Absolutely. Yeah. Scribing meaning into things is uh, how I think they kind of put this in the documentary. And yeah, but it's so weird watching this when people are sort of like expressing this like deep affection almost for this person they've never met, exactly. somebody who... and. I'll be honest, I, I did kind of look up her Tumblr because it's still archived. Um, her Tumblr was called Nouveau, Nouveau I, I don't know how to pronounce that correctly, so forgive me, but uh, it's still online. Um, it's eight years old, but it's still out there and you can read her posts and see you know, kind of what she was up to. There were still posts that happened after her death. I'm not sure how that worked, but uh, it, it is kind of fascinating to look back and as a time machine. But yeah, what, what did you make of that connection these Toulouse were having? With the Tumblr, you mean, or just with her? Just her in general, yeah. I mean, the Tumblr thing, I think there is a positivity there, right? Of like her words kind of like really hit people. And, you know, that yeah. part of it I thought was understandable. Yeah. But yeah, there's this, you know, one one after another, a lot of these, you know, web sleuths, um, you know, they keep saying, oh, I've, you know, I love her. Or I feel like I've known her. I know her and things of that sort. Um, and I, I mean, I'd, I'd be lying if I said I at some point, I did not, the words get a life did not escape my mouth. <laughs> um, there's a real sort of attachment that some of these people are able to make to somebody that they've never met. Um, and enough to, you know, I we, mean, we should mention briefly, you know, this, this death metal artist, uh, Morbid. Um, yeah. They basically ruined that guy's life um, just because they thought that maybe you know, you wrote this one song or you made this really gross video or you stayed at the hotel during this time. Um, I mean, there are consequences to, to some of this behavior that these, that the webbies have. Um, yeah. I was, I was almost kind of annoyed that with that though, because like part of his story ends with like a cliffhanger. And if you didn't watch anything else, you might think, I think you were kind of alluding to this earlier. He's like, you might think that there's actually like validity to, you know, this guy being a real suspect. And uh, I, th I thought a little bit of that felt kind of uh, manipulative a little bit in like, yeah. the documentary. So this is something that I discussed with my editor a lot as we were go going through the story is, um, can you have it both ways? Um, can you, you know, and, and I even asked Berlinger a little bit about this, you know, is, can you have this sort of entertainment factor and this, you know, can you acknowledge the more sensationalist aspects without giving them room to grow. Um, I think he walked that line pretty well, but I think it's a line that's definitely there. Um, and I think he, he, you know, he's, he enjoys talking about this kind of stuff. You know, he's, he's a pretty philosophical dude and he's very self-aware um, what he's doing. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad. I mean, he understands, I think that like, the documentary itself does have to be entertaining, <laughs> you know, it yeah. can't just be like a dry, nothing but, you know, factual robotic regurgitation of facts because then otherwise it's a Wikipedia article. Exactly. So I do appreciate, yeah, there is good editing. There is like a, a series of narratives that he's trying to weave together. I think that all makes sense. Um, yeah. I was, I was also going to ask you to, you know, the one thing that I was kind of wondering is like, would this have worked better if it was a little bit shorter? You know, I, I, I won't say that I wasn't like bored watching it, you know, or I, I was 
not bored watching it, I'll be clear. I was, you know, I was intrigued. I was invested in it. But I did kind of wonder, like, could he have done this in like one or two episodes? What's your opinion? I'm still undecided. It's a really good question that I haven't really thought about specifically. But I mean, now that you mention it, I'm, I I didn't need to see that elevator footage for the yes. know, 10,000th time. Um, there were times when, you know, there were definitely times where I felt like it was repeating itself. Um, and that's one way of perhaps saying that it could be a little shorter. Um, you know, there's this, this key elevator surveillance footage where she's acting, is in the elevator, she's acting kind of weird, pushes a bunch of buttons, goes outside the elevator, seems to be gesturing at somebody, and everybody's like, ooh, there's somebody out there, there's somebody out there. And we must, I don't know how many times they show that thing, but I mean, I, <laughs> I, I obviously memorized it. Uh, <laughs> right. So yeah, I, I think yeah. it probably could have been a little shorter. I guess the point was that they were, he was really trying to nail in like people obsessed over this footage. And I, I did get that point, but I was wondering like, I don't know, I, I guess I didn't need every single instance of that. Uh, another thing that I was kind of a little quibble I had was how the police investigation, I think for the purpose of keeping the documentary like interesting, is it's kind of spread out. Like you don't get some key information about this investigation, you know, until it's weird because it goes forward in time to like people speculating about things. And then it comes back to like what the actual investigation was, the autopsy stuff. And I don't know, I was a little bit like, I, I was wondering if I was wishing that they had been a little bit more upfront about some of that stuff so that they could spend the rest of the documentary series being more linear, I guess, because I, I kept getting the wrong impression that like a lot of things weren't figured out or like certain things were, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, I mean, just one example that they, they mentioned near the beginning of the series, the docu-series that um, she's bipolar. And so we're going to like, that's interesting. It ends up being really interesting, you know, without spoiling anything too much. Um, there's there is definitely a a parsing out of information, um, and some of it is in the name of suspense, I suppose. Um, but at other times, you know, it's it's a weird thing. I mean, you or I could, you know, <laughs> literally just click open a window right now and see exactly what happened. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's known, and so he's you know Berlinger's you know, playing with this very much solved mystery. And it's up to him to try to distribute the information as, as, as craftily as he can and as responsibly as he can. And um, does that get, does that get kind of bumpy sometimes? Yeah, I would say, I would say it does. Um, But, you know, suspense, I mean, in a way you need to keep that suspense going for, I didn't, I didn't, did you know this, did you know this story beforehand? Were you familiar with it? I was not. A little bit, a little bit, because I remember I was on Tumblr. I actually had read her post before. Oh, wow. Um, because I was a big Tumblr user more like in 2011, 2012. Um, that said, I knew that something had happened to her. There was like some sort of disappearance, but I didn't, I wasn't, you know, watching the video or anything like that. I, I didn't even live in California until uh, a year after all of this happened. So uh, vaguely aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea. So it was new to me. Um, and I, and I refrained from going online and finding out what happened um, until it ended. Yeah. But, but that's a challenge for, it's gotta be a challenge for a filmmaker to, 
tell a story like this that were the truth. I thought it was challenging as the audience member not looking things up because <laughs> I yeah, really wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. But it's pretty rewarding if you don't. So um so that is a crime scene vanishing at the CISO Hotel. It is available to stream right now on Netflix. Last I checked, I think it's still like in the top 10. I don't know exactly where it is. it's changing all the time, but it's definitely picking up a lot of traction uh, with people. And I, th- I think for good reasons. I think it's pretty well done. I, it definitely was better than I expected. Uh, but Chris, thank you so much for coming on and uh, talking about this show. And uh, everyone definitely check out his piece about the uh, crime scene vanishing at Cecil Hotel, which is on New York Times now. We'll link it in the show notes. Thank you, Joe. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Be sure to subscribe to Cinemaholics on your favorite podcast app of choice or find us on YouTube where you can stream our weekly episodes live for even more banter and weird film takes. See you all next time.